Now, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn uh, to the Gospel according to Luke this time, and chapter 23. Reading at verse 44, Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now these words have a special significance because they are the very last words that uh, Christ spoke before his death. And we expect them therefore to carry a very particular importance and so they do. I suppose they're often eclipsed by the words that he spoke immediately before them. And we know those words better when he said with a loud voice, it is finished. And of course those words are very precious to us and rightly so. They remind us that the Lord finished the work that his father had given him to do. And because of that, we are blessed, blessed by the finished work of Christ But they aren't his last words. There's a sense in which you would expect them to be his last words. It is finished. But they are not. Before he expires, he utters these words. And they are, of course, a prayer. Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. And... Because they're spoken immediately after such profound words as it is finished, I think they're often overlooked or neglected. Uh, But we shouldn't, of course, do that. They're not just a a postscript to it is finished. They're to be considered in their own right. They're a separate saying. If you think of Christ's sayings on the cross, there are seven of them. And this one stands on its own. It's not a part of the previous one. In fact, Luke here records it on his own, that after he had cried out with a loud voice, he then said, Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. And immediately following that, he bows his head. Now I want us with the Lord's help to consider these words together. And I hope we'll see that they are full of instruction for ourselves, and also full of consolation. 
Now the saying has to do with his spirit or his soul. These two words are interchangeable for the purpose of this sermon anyway. Sometimes the spirit is spoken of as the soul, sometimes the soul as the spirit. They are here the same. He's not speaking about his body because his body will cease to live and his body will be in the hands of men and the body will be buried by men. But here his concern is with the spirit which is going direct to his father. And of course the saying has to do with the care of his spirit. He is concerned for the care of his spirit. When he says, into thine hands I commit my spirit, the word commit just means to entrust, to entrust into somebody's care, to leave it to another. Now, of course, we do that with our own souls. As Christians, we have committed our souls to another. Just as Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. The word commit there in the Greek is the same as here. That which I have committed to him, he is able to keep it until that last and great day. What is it that he committed? Well, of course, the care of his own soul. That is what we entrust to God as our shepherd. So Christ here is entrusting his soul to his father. In the previous saying, he had called upon God as God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he says, it is finished. But now he says, Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. Now that shouldn't make us think that he is just committing his soul to God exclusively as his father. Because the father is, after all, also the judge of all. And I've no doubt that he's committing his soul to his father (coughs) as his father, but also as the judge of all. I'll come to that, God willing later on. It is, of course, a prayer. He's not addressing these words to the people. He is addressing them directly to his Father. Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. But although it's a a prayer and a private prayer, yet it's one that he wants to be heard by everybody. Now, that's not a, a unique thing in the Lord's ministry. He told us, of course, that our secret prayers, our private prayers, should be offered in private, but there were exceptions to that in his own ministry. When he prayed for the resurrection of Lazarus, standing beside Lazarus' grave, he lifted up his eyes, we're told, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That's in connection with raising Lazarus. I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me but because of the people who are standing by I said this 
that they may believe that you sent me. So the prayer of thanksgiving that he is offering to his father, he offers it publicly for the people's benefit, that they might hear that prayer and recognize that the great miracle he is performing, he was performing in the name of God and by the power of God. Now the same thing is true here. It is a very personal prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But he wants everybody to hear it. He wants everybody to hear it. That he has full confidence, knowing where he is going, to whom he is going, and whatever may be done with the body, his soul is going straight to glory and to the hands of the Father. So it's a prayer that's to be heard. And as I indicated there, he wants it to be heard because of the importance of his soul's destiny. Here is a man who's been uh, battered and abused beyond almost all recognition as a man. And he dies a cursed death, evidently so, he hangs upon a tree. It's as though he was rejected by the earth and rejected by heaven. But he wants everyone to know that his spirit is going into the hands of the one who is his father. After all, his body will still be in the hands of men. And for a time, he himself was in the hands of men. It's an amazing thing to think of Christ throughout his ministry, how nobody was allowed to lay hands on him. At no point do you find anyone laying hands on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody could touch him. There was a time in Nazareth when they were so angry with the content of his preaching in his own hometown that they they tried to put him down a cliff but it was impossible for him to do for them to do it. He just passed through their midst. And the reason for that is because the time was not yet. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't kill him because it wasn't time. But when it was time, the Saviour tells us that he was betrayed into the hands of men. It's as though there is a sense in which, although God is always sovereign and over all everything, he passes from the hands of God into the hands of men. And suddenly, because the time was right, they laid hands upon him. As Paul tells us, with wicked hands, they crucified him. In fact, you can say from Gethsemane onwards that he falls into the hands of men. And even after the very point of his death, he is still in the hands of men. It is human hands that take him down from the cross and it's human hands that bury him. Although I remember when I was here, perhaps I don't know actually how long ago, but I remember preaching on Christ being with the rich in his death. Although he was numbered with the wicked, strangely he was um, with the rich in his death. It, it It was two disciples who took him down from the cross and of course they took him down lovingly and carefully <coughs> and they embalmed him and they gave him a funeral that would transcend the funeral of a king 
God had a purpose in that. He's preaching something to us in that, without a doubt. Um, wicked men wanted to take him down from the cross. <clears throat> the Jews would have loved to take him down from the cross and abused the body as they had abused his soul. But God didn't allow that. Uh, God put him into the hands of his own disciples and covered that precious body in spices. But nonetheless, it still has to be said that his body is in the hands of men. But the Lord wants to take our attention away from his body there upon the cross and to think profoundly about his soul. Where is his soul going? Where is his spirit going? That's always the question. It's the question that confronts ourselves at death. We see death ourselves. Sometimes we see the dead. Sometimes we see people dying. We hear them die. We hear them expire, even as the Lord Jesus Christ expired. But the question to be confronted is, where have they gone? When they expired, where did they go? And strangely enough, it's a question that's often ignored or neglected, even within the church itself. It's as though the body is all that matters. The body is in our hands. We bury the remains, but the soul has gone to God. And the soul goes to God either for blessing or for cursing. And how often that is forgotten. When we attend a funeral, it's a solemn, solemn thought. When we attend a, a wake or the house of mourning, where has that person gone? Where is that person? Even now as we lay them in a coffin, where is the soul? The Lord Jesus told us not to be afraid of people who kill the body. And after that, there is no more they can do. Can't touch you beyond that. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So as the Lord prays, he wants the crowd to know that whatever befalls his body, his spirit is out of men's hands, and he is in the hands of his Father. And what's more, He's glad of that. He's committing it to his father's care and keeping in a great act of faith. Now, this act of committing our spirits to God is one that we can follow uh, to some extent. Certainly, as, as Christians, we commit our souls to God in general. But sometimes we know death is coming. Sometimes we don't know death is coming. Uh, death can overtake us. That's the foolish thing, of course, in connection with people who leave off looking after their souls until they have a convenient season. Well, God's appointment book isn't based on our convenience. Not at all. Uh, we need to be ready. But sometimes we know it's coming. We know it's coming. And if we are in the Lord, we can embrace it. And we commit ourselves to him in a special way. 
Uh, Stephen is an example of that. When he was being stoned to death, he knew he was dying. He knew he just had a few more minutes left in this world. He knew that. And the heavens were open to him. As, as we saw last week, they, they were open to him. And he saw the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I commit my spirit to you. And we can all do that. We can follow. We can follow the Lord in this if we have faith. If, if we have faith and if we have assurance. If, like Paul, we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he has and will look after this. We can commit our souls to God in death like that. We have a confidence. And it's a wonderful thing to see a Christian dying with that kind of confidence. But there are some areas in which the Lord's committal of his spirit is quite unique. It sets him apart from us. And I want God willing to look at it with you today. With God's blessing too. Uh, I want us first of all just to notice the connection between the actual saying and his last breath. You'll notice that they both come together. In verse 46, when he had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last it's immediate. It's immediate. In fact, there's even a linguistic connection. The word for spirit there is the same word as for expire or breathed as last. Into your hands I commit my spirit and he spirates his last. The one immediately follows the other. And that must have been quite a thing to hear. It must have made an impression on the people who heard it. The actual connection between the two. Some of us here will have heard the last breath. That everything in connection with death is a surprise when it comes. It's never quite how, we, how you thought it was. And I remember myself the first time I heard a last breath. How, I was so surprised at how long it was. Um, how, how overwhelming the impression that Something was departing. Something more than a breath. Same kind of impression that you have in connection with a body. That something more than mere animal life, if we call it that, has departed. Something more. The same is true with the breath. It's astonishing to hear. But there they heard strong words. Father, into your hands I commit my breath, my spirit. And immediately... There follows a long expiration of breath from the body of the Lord after he bows his head. Because his, his head didn't fall like Stephen going on his knees deliberately. He didn't fall. The Lord bowed his head and breathed out his last. It's the most profound expiration in the history of of the world without a doubt. Now that reminds us that there's a, a deep spiritual connection going on here. As the breath departs, so does the spirit. It's the reverse of what happened when the first Adam came into this world. 
when he was made of the dust of the earth. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. Here the second Adam breathes his life out as he hangs upon the cross. Breathes his life out of his own nostrils. Now I think we're being told four things, first of all, about the death of Christ. First of all, we're being told that there is a sovereignty in it. His own sovereignty. He wants us all to know that although dying is a terribly defeating thing, it's not to be seen that way with him. He's going to face the king of terrors as the king of kings and as the lord of lords and as the lord of this terror too. He may be devoured, but he himself is conquering in the process. He goes into death as one who is in control of it. Now there's a mystery here. Death is coming, but he goes out towards it. And it's Matthew that conveys that most fully by using the expression that he dismissed his spirit. And it's a very authoritative word in the Greek language, to dismiss. He, he sent it. He, he gave his spirit a commission. Go. Depart. Leave this world. Leave this cross. Leave this body. And go into the presence of my Father. He sent it away as a king would send it away. And he made reference to his authority over death in the passage that we read in John when he was talking about his own life and his own death. And speaking of his life, he says, I have authority to lay it down. It's translated power there, but I think best translated authority. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. There's a sovereignty in it. When I lay down my life, I do so. When I take it up again, I do so. There's a sovereignty in it. And the people must have been impressed with that. This man is in control of his own dying. And then again, there's a voluntariness in it. There's a voluntariness in it. That comes through in the same words in John 10, 17. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. It is voluntary. Now, we need to be careful with this because there's a sense in which death would come upon him anyway as a man who has been crucified. No man can endure a crucifixion. Now, some people say that it wasn't possible for Christ to die because he was sinless. But we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, he is at this point a sin bearer. He's connected with sin. He's so connected with sin at this point that he can speak of sin as being my sin. There are some passages in Scripture that are a bit dark like that because in the Psalms we have the Saviour's prayers and the thoughts of his mind and the feelings of his heart. 
and he pours out these prayers to his father. And then he suddenly comes out with an expression of, my sins. And we immediately think, well, how does that work? Well, it works because there is. Not by commission, but by imputation. And really the how doesn't matter. Once they're yours, they're yours. They're his sins to give account for. They're his sins to suffer for. They're his sins to die for. Where are the sins of his people at that point in time? They're on his back. Whose are they? Nobody else's. His. His. And he is conscious of the weight of that burden. Not by commission, but by imputation. They are very definitely his. So that's one reason why he had to die anyway. But it's also worth remembering that the life that he lived was, like the first Adam, a life that needed preservation by God. I I don't want to be facetious in any way or or to try to get towards that, but if Christ was to be beheaded, he would die. If in the modern day he was to be shot, he would die. The kind of life that he lived was a life that could meet a death. But the point is that he was never allowed to. Just as the first Adam would be kept in all his ways. It's not so much that the first Adam couldn't die. It's the fact that God would not allow him to die. A special preservation upon him at all times. And the same is true with the Saviour. Just like at Nazareth, he was preserved by God. In Psalm 91, we're told that God gave his angels charge over him. Why? To keep him in all his ways. Lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Notice the possibility of injury. But, but that injury was always kept from him because of this angelic ministry that we saw last Lord's Day, which is constantly ascending and descending from the Father to the Son. A divine protection. It's a divine protection that's on us too, until we die. Uh, One of the Puritans said, I can't remember the exact word that he used, but it was essentially to the effect that we are all indestructible until we die. Uh, God doesn't allow our life to be taken until it's time for our life to be taken. There are countless ways in which we could all have met our death. Mm -hmm. None of us knows how close we've been to it at various points of time. But God gave his angels charge over us too, to keep us in all our ways. Sometimes it's milliseconds and you don't know it. Uh, A dangerous situation, a wayward car, a reckless moment, hundreds of these Hundreds, but you're indestructible until the time comes for God to take you away. Well, so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucifixion would have killed him. But at the point at which death is coming, he makes a special move towards it to show that he has chosen it, that he would never be in this position had he not chosen to be in this position. I am yielding myself to the king of terrors. He embraces death and he does it 
for our sake. I think it's important at the same time to note that there's a sense, and it's only a sense, in which this process could have been stopped by the Lord. Only a sense. It's a complicated question because it becomes very philosophical and and very deeply theological. Uh, Let me just refer you to what happened when Jesus was arrested. When Christ was arrested, you'll remember that Peter took out a sword. Now, the disciples had these two swords and uh, they were conscious that difficulty was coming. And uh, Peter took out a sword and he he cut off the, high, the servant of the high priest's ear. And as I've often said, that's not because his aim was good, but because his aim was bad. He wanted to do a lot more damage than that. But, but he cut off the high priest's ear. And the Lord stopped him. The Lord stopped him. Of course, he healed uh, the man's ear. But he turned and said to Peter to put away your sword. Put away your sword. And he said to him, Do you not think that even now I could call on my father who would send twelve legions of angels? But how then could the scripture be fulfilled? But but you'll notice what he says though. Do you not think that even now I could call upon my father? He won't. It's not in his portion to do so. But he wants Peter to understand that that's who he is. At every single point of his suffering, that's who he is. Somebody who had the power, as it were, to extricate himself from it. And the same is true on the cross. Come down from the cross and save yourself, they said. And why couldn't he? He had the power to do so. Just like he had the power to turn stones into bread. Satan said, cast yourself from the temple because he has given his angels charge over you. Satan knew the scripture, of course. He knew Psalm 91. He knew that Psalm 91 was about the scripture, which is more than some Christians do. He said, throw yourself off. Watch his protection. Trust his protection. Maybe you doubt his protection. Here you are in a wilderness, surrounded by wild beasts. You're starving and famished. Are you sure God really cares? Are you sure God really loves you? I was once glorious as you are. But the Lord did not tempt his father. He did not put himself into a position where he should not be just to test his father's love, just as we must never put ourselves into positions in which we should never be, just to test our father's love and commitment to ourselves. Never. That is to test or to tempt the Lord our God. And neither would he on the cross. But there's that sense in which, even on the cross, as he's just about to expire, you could envisage him turning and saying, do you not think that even now I could call upon my Father who would send twelve legions of angels, but the same would be true. How then would the scripture be fulfilled? No, I am here because I chose to. And weak as I am, let me die 
at the precise point of death in a way that shows that this could have been very different. That with a word of my power, I could um, destroy all my enemies. I am here because I choose to, and I am here for your sakes. That's true for us today. It's also true of so many people around the cross there when he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's quite a thought to think that the wicked hands that were crucifying him, many of them were the ones for whom he was actually dying at that point in time. It's an astonishing thought. And uh, when it comes to the greatness of God's love, who who can fathom that? So as death is sovereign, it's also voluntary. As well as being voluntary, it's also, and this is connected, it's sacrificial. Now the reason I'm emphasizing that it's sacrificial, well, it's a particular reason. Because I've heard some people, this may be unthinkable to most of you, it's unthinkable to me too, but I've heard some people describe the Lord's death as technically a suicide. should never be described as a suicide. For one thing, suicide (coughs) is a sin. All these words that end in C-I-D-E, coming from the Latin, are uh, sin. Homicide is the murder of a man. Fratricide is the murder of a brother. Uh, Matricide, murder of a mother. Uh, Patricide is the murder of your father. Suicide is murder of yourself. The murder of yourself. And some people say, well, well, if he, if he dismissed his spirit like that, is, is that not suicide? No. You never call sacrifice suicide. There, there is a coming together of the natural and the spiritual here. There is the expiry of the body and the dismissing of it by the Lord. The two things are working together, but in such a way that makes it a sacrifice. <coughs> Let me just highlight the difference for you like this. Let's suppose someone threw a grenade into this room. And let's suppose one of you fell on top of that grenade to absorb the blast and to spare the rest. Would you call that a suicide? <laughs> Never. Would you, would you put that in the epitaph? Would you, would you write it on the obituary that he committed suicide for other people's sakes? No. The word suicide is not applicable. That's not the murder of self. That's the giving of self. It's the giving of self for others. Giving your own life for others. Not taking it away when you ought not to take it away. It is giving it for others. That is what the Lord did. And these things are quite, differences like that are, are quite important to remember. People very often confuse things that are alike. Um, people say that Elijah had suicidal mm-hmm. uh, thoughts underneath the juniper tree. Um, no, he asked God to take away his life, which is not the same as taking it away himself. Different things, very different things. I've heard it said from the pulpit that Samson committed suicide. Samson did not commit suicide. Samson gave himself as a sacrifice in the Lord's cause when he pushed out the temple pillars. 
Yes, of course it led to his own death, and he knew that, but it wasn't a suicide. And neither is the Lord's death. This is a sacrifice the like of which the world has never seen. It, it wasn't to save good men that Christ died. I mean, for a good man, Paul says, some may d- dare to die. Yes, you might. You might summon up the courage to die for a good person. You might do that if you really love that person. Most of us perhaps have people in our family that when we're pushed, we would die for them. Yes, some would. But God commendeth his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now what what that is telling us is that Christ's death has in view not good people, but sinners that he is going to make good people. But But at the point of his death, that's not how they're viewed. They're viewed as they are. While we were yet sinners. It's in that condition that Christ died for us. It's not as though he saw us repenting and changing and becoming wonderful and then saying, oh, in that case, I'll die for them. But, but he died for a people in whom there was nothing, nothing in me, nothing in you. And God commends that kind of love. That's what makes the love of God so, so remarkable. I mean, can you follow that or me? I, I struggle I mean, certainly the Bible tells us to to love as God loves, but who can go to that extent? Who can go to that depth for people who are unholy and sinful and undesirable, ugly, the opposite of everything good? But he does that. He gives himself a sacrifice. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So it's sovereign. It's voluntary, but although voluntary, it's sacrificial, not suicidal. It is also, of course, obedient. It's an obedient death. When the Lord uh, speaks about him dismissing his own spirit and laying down his life, he emphasizes that he has authority to do it. But then suddenly he says, this command I have received from my father. There's the two sides all the time. He is the king and the servant. And he is conscious at all times that he's being obedient to his father's will. And that the purpose for doing these things is to save sinners. All the time he's conscious of that. When he turns to Peter and says... Do you not think that I could call upon my father who would send 12 legions of angels? Why doesn't he do it? Because the scripture must be fulfilled? Well, yes. That's what they would call logically the proximate reason. But you've got to go behind the proximate reason. You've got to go to the ultimate reason. Why then must scripture be fulfilled? Well, scripture is written... Uh, by the Father in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will I take delight can we even go behind that and say why was it written why was it written in the book why did God say that you had to do this ah well was there not a sacred agreement was there not a sacred agreement 
Was there not a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, and indeed the Holy Spirit too? Did the Son there not agree to become obedient? One who had never received a command, ever, did he not agree to come into a condition where he would receive a command? where an authority would be placed over him and he would do it. He agreed to that. He agreed to that. And in the fullness of time, he would take human nature and he would become obedient. So a powerful motivator in the Lord's heart was to do his Father's will. To do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art. And whenever the devil would cut across that by saying, uh, turn the stones to bread, or call on twelve legions of angels, I'm sure the devil would have said something like that. Or even at the cross, you know, when people said, come down and save yourself. Do you not think that Satan was in that? I think it was too wise, if you like, for men. I, I feel that that wasn't just the nastiness of people. I feel it was the intrigue of Satan whose whole artillery was directed against the Son of God at the cross. Why not come down and save yourself? No, because I'm here to do my Father's will and to do thy will I take delight. When we have difficult things to do ourselves in the Christian life, a powerful motivator lies in the fact that God wants us to do it. This is God's will. And with God's will, let me be happy. And let me always be happy with it. Coming into this world, no sacrifice nor offering didst thou at all desire. Sin offering thou unburnt didst not require. What? Is that true? Only in one sense. He was never asked, as I said, before the singing, he was never asked as a Levitical priest to take an animal, to flay it, to cut it, to put it in order on an altar. Never. Never a sin offering, never a burnt offering. But a sin offering and a burnt offering, absolutely so. The sin offering he had to require, and the burnt offering he had to require, for that, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, consecrates himself and yields himself up and offers himself a sacrifice to the Father. Why? Because to do thy will I take delight. And in contemplation of it, all through his life, that psalm... I mean, sometimes we, we would benefit from thinking of the Lord singing the psalms himself, uh, even, think, even singing them as a, as a young man. Singing them as a young man Within the volume of the book, it written is of me. To do thy will I take delight, O thou my God that art. Now that doesn't by any means finish the way in which the Lord uh, commits his spirit to the Father. He certainly commits it in a sovereign, voluntary, sacrificial and obedient act. But there's also an offering in faith and God willing uh, we'll consider that uh, later tonight let's stand and call upon the Lord's name
O Eternal One, enable us to find gratitude in our own hearts uh, for such a, a committal as this, one who was willing to die. And uh, when you created the first man, that body and soul ought never to have been separated. For they were made to be uh, united forevermore. But uh, sin brought in that separation. And uh, with it came death. And uh, so our Saviour had to die too. And uh, we are thankful that he looked at the King of Terrors and that he advanced towards him. And uh, we praise you that he laid down his life for our sakes. And also that he took it up again. And that the Saviour we worship today is not dead. He's not to be found in a tomb somewhere in the Holy Land. But that he is risen at your right hand. Continue with us in our deliberations on these things this evening, we pray in the Redeemer's name. Amen. Uh, we'll sing in Psalm 16 and at verse 8. Psalm 16 and verse 8. <coughs> Again, the, the Saviour's words. <coughs> Before me still the Lord I said, Sith it is so that he does ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move to be. And I, I think this prayer belongs to Gethsemane and, uh, when he is receiving the cup from his Father's hand. Because of this my heart is glad, and joy shall be expressed even by my glory and my flesh in confidence shall rest. Because my soul, in grave to dwell, shall not be left by thee, nor wilt thou give thine Holy One corruption to see. <coughs> and here he, he looks forward beyond the cross. Thou wilt me show the path of life, of joys that is full store before thy face, at thy right hand are pleasures. Evermore. These uh, last four stanzas we stand to sing. Oh, uh-huh. 